You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Good morning. Uh, Glad you're here. I want to take you back, all right, take you back to 1988, to Northridge Elementary, and the little Matt Carell is sitting in his third grade class. He's a cute little kid, skinny, blonde hair, bowl cut. This is what you're picturing, all right? And so you got this kid, and it's time for recess. Excited, go play soccer with all his friends, and the teacher comes over. And right when she's about to release us, she says, Matt, I need you to stay in during recess. Well, this isn't unexpected, all right? There's a good chance she figured out something I did. It's not the first time that I had a missed recess. But I didn't know what, what I was in trouble for, and I said, what, what did I do? What, what do you know? And, and uh, she said, no, no, you're not in trouble this time. This time. Uh, You're not in trouble this time. I want you to meet someone. At which point I thought, great. You know, it was exciting. Was I like picked out of a drawing that I'm the one that gets to meet someone famous. Someone's visiting our school. They're having a representative from the third grade class. And it's me. And so they say, I want you to meet someone. And I say, all right. So everyone goes off to class. And my teacher takes me down to the sixth grade hallway. Well, at the sixth grade hallway, uh, it, it's intimidating, all right? It's, it's a place I'd never been before. I just walked by and seen it from a distance, and I was scared even at that. But I get to the sixth grade hallway, and I look, and there's, there's work, uh, work of art that people have done and schoolwork on the walls and stuff that I thought I could never do anything like that. And, and it's amazing. I'm in the sixth grade hallway, and I come to this classroom. And there's one little boy, uh, a sixth grader, sitting at a desk, and the teacher is at, at her desk, and that's it in the classroom. And, and I come in, and, and my teacher says, go ahead and go on in. And the, the sixth grade teacher says, hey, come on in, Matt. Uh, I want you to meet Michael. Michael wants to talk to you. Mikey has the same life experience that you have, and I want him to talk to you about it. He's like, oh, all right. I don't know what that means, but Mikey and I are going to talk. And so I sit down. And Michael begins, and he says, I want you to know it's okay to be short. And I was like, what? And Mikey says, I've been short my whole life. I'm the shortest one in the sixth grade class, and I want you to know it's okay to be short. At this point, I don't know what he's talking about because, strangely enough, I've been lived in my own bubble, and up to this point, I have never realized I am short, all right? I've never noticed that. Everyone else is smaller than me in my class. I've never noticed any of this, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, the teachers thought it would be good for me to spend some time with you because you're short. And I was like, no, I don't think so, man. And they're like, no, you are, all right? And the teacher, he says, the teacher thought it'd be good for us to talk. And and I want you to know it's okay to be short. You're going to get picked on a lot. You're going to get pushed around a lot. You're going to have people make fun of you a lot. I was like, this is awesome. Great. You know, what a pick-me-up. And and I was like, this sounds really bad, man. Like, Mikey, why are you telling me this? He's like, but it's okay. You're going to get picked on a lot, but... But you're still a good person, even though you're short. And I thought, I don't know about this. And he starts telling me about how horrible it is to be short and all these things that I'm going to get beat up and so forth, but that it's okay, all right? And I was like, ah, that, I don't know. And so on the walk back from the sixth grade hallway, it's been about 20 minutes, recess is about over. I'm headed back from the sixth grade hallway to the third grade hallway. And I'm just thinking in my mind, I was like, man, Mikey's life sounds awful. I would hate to be short. 
And I get to class and everyone comes in and I realize everybody's a giant in here, right? I had not realized this yet, but everybody in my class is taller than me. We go to lunch about an hour later and I look and I survey the entire third grade class and I'm the shortest one of all of them by far. This is never registered with me that I am short. And so I go home and I tell my parents, I was like, do you know that I'm short? They're like, yeah, we just didn't want to tell you. And, and so I was like, oh, what? And so this rocked my world. And from this point on, I have realized I'm short. Had he not told me today, I might think that I'm tall. But Mikey revealed this to me, and, and so it completely rocked my world. From then on, I realized, like, when we would take pictures, I was always the smallest one. When we would line up to go to recess or gym, and the teachers have you line up by different ways, alphabetical names, sometimes by height, I'm always the last one with all the petite little girls, and they're bigger than me, and they, they could beat me up. And it was, it was a horrifying thing. But I, I slowly began to embrace it. A couple years later, when we were studying Native Americans, we were each given an Indian name, and mine was too short to dunk. And, and so we, I, I grew to embrace this concept that I was short. And eventually, I became kind of okay with it, right? Um, but, but it still is rocking my world. And if you guys haven't picked up on it, I'll, I'll reveal this to you. I'm still short. All right. Uh, a couple of people after first hour told me that if, if you wear all one color clothing, it makes you look taller. And so I took note of that, and I'll start doing that. And someone else said, if you wear bright clothing, you look taller. So I might, next week you'll see me in like an orange jumpsuit, right? People think I, got, I snuck out of a prison, but at least they'll think I'm tall and snuck out of a prison. So it'll be worth it. But um, so this concept of being small, of being the shortest one around, has kind of shaped how I viewed the story we're about to get into. I think this is why I have loved this story. It's the story of David and Goliath, right? It's the, the classic story of the underdog beating the giant. It's this classic story of a little runt beating the big kid in class. And so I sided with him and I saw myself through David and I thought, there's a chance that I could win. David beat Goliath. I don't think Mikey's going to, but there's a chance I could win. And, and David beat Goliath and so I could win in life even though I'm this runt, even though I'm short. And, and so this is a story that I've always connected to that has always been a special one for me. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. We've been going through, we're going to be going through the life of David and looking at this idea of from chaos to Christ. That in David's life, there was chaos. And we're going to see today that a giant is taunting him and a giant ends up coming at him with a sword. That is chaos. And he clings to God. Our life seems to be chaos. People looking for jobs, people wondering where, where the next paycheck would come, wondering what school's gonna look like. Even this week, do we wear a mask or not? I had some people calling and saying, the church, we have to wear a mask. Other people calling, saying, be sure not to make us wear a mask. Everything is just chaos, and, and the life that we're in right now is just insane and chaotic, and in the midst of that, we can cling to Christ. And I believe and I hope that's what we'll gather out of this story. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17, we'll also have it up on the, the, the screen. But I'm going to give you kind of a summary of the beginning of the story, and then we'll get into some verses later on. We have this battle. 
uh, at the Valley of Sukkoth, which I think we have a picture of. And we have the Philistines coming from the coastal plains. And the Philistines are coming, and they come from the coastal plains, and, and they meet the Israelites. They're, they're coming to take over the Israelite land. Saul hears of this. He hears that the Philistines have an army, that they're coming and marching this way. So he gathers his Israelite army, and they come and they meet. The, the Philistines are in the far, far mountain range, right, on the far hills. If you look on the right-hand side, where that road is headed up in the mountains, that's where they believe the Philistine camp was. And the Israelite camp is on the near mountain on the left-hand side. And then there's the valley in between. Those two mountains are about a mile apart. But when you're on those mountains, you can see the other one. They'd be able to see the other army. They'd be able to hear their war cries. They'd be able to hear the clatter and the sound that they're making. And they're sizing each other up. These two armies are about to go to battle. See, the Philistines have been the arch enemy of the Israelites. When God gave them the promised land, when he gave them the land of Canaan, he said to wipe out the people, and the Philistines were some of those people. And the Israelites did with some, but with others they didn't, and the Philistines were one of those that they didn't. The Israelites were scared. The Philistines were a mighty people. They were a large people. They were tall people. They were big people. They were a mighty force. They were a technologically advanced people. They were one of the first people... Sorry, they were one of the first people to use bronze and iron in their weaponry. And when they give the description of Goliath, we'll see that, that they make a point to say he had a helmet of bronze, a shield of bronze, a sword of bronze, coat of armor of bronze. They make a point to say that for a reason, that they were a mighty, educated, technologically advanced warrior people. People the Israelites were scared to confront. And so these people that the Israelites were too scared because they didn't rely on God. God had told them, I will give you this land. You will wipe out these people. I've given you this land already. They already had God on their side, but they were disobedient and they didn't trust God. And because of that, they constantly have the Philistines as a thorn in their flesh, constantly fighting and coming to a battle at the Valley of Sakath. And so you have these two groups, the Israelites and the Philistines. And among the Philistines, there is a mighty warrior. The text calls him a champion. Champion would imply that he's been to battle multiple times. That not just as an army that he's been to battle, but he's the champion among the, among the warriors. That he has gone to battle and he has been the first and foremost warrior. That he has battled mano a mano, single hand combat, he has always won. Like an old gunslinger in the Wild West, if you were bad, you weren't around long. But if you're still alive, you're obviously a good one. This is Goliath, the champion. The text says that Goliath stood, stood very tall. He was a giant uh, among the men. It says that he was uh, six cubits in a span, which would be over nine feet tall. A cubic was uh, a measurement from the tip of the finger to the elbow, about 18 inches. And then a span is from the pinky to a, to a man's thumb when spread out about nine inches. So it's estimated he was nine foot nine inches. Now, there are some texts, and if you, if you hear away, he wasn't really that tall. And, and there's some texts, Mesmeretic texts or, or the scrolls they found in the Dead Sea that say he was four cubits in a span, which would have made him six foot nine. Either way, he dwarfed the Hebrews. The Hebrews were a small people, and then above, among them, you have, uh, you have David, who is just a young teenager, who in chapter 16, he's pointed out and called small, called a runt. Many believe he was probably only five to five foot three, facing a six foot nine or nine foot nine. Either way, it would have been a giant. 
Either way, he, the giant had at least 18 inches on him. And more importantly, he was a champion. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. David doesn't stand a chance in this fight. See, Goliath is incredibly strong. He has his helmet of bronze, and, and everything that he has weighs, uh, weighs an extreme amount. It says that his coat of armor weighed 125 pounds. I was looking up to try to get a comparison to understand <clears throat> what would it be like to carry around 125 pounds, and I found out that's the weight of an octopus or 364 bananas. Uh, those two weren't very relevant for me, but I did find it's the weight of a, about an average high school uh, freshman, right? So imagine a freshman hanging on you and going to battle, being agile, being quick, being quick enough to be the champion with that much weight on you. That's how strong Goliath is, their champion. And so you have these two armies on the mountains in this valley and below, and they're at a deadlock. Because neither army is willing to go forward, because if they go forward, that means they go down in the valley, which means now they're the lower of the two, and the, and the army that has the upper hand, the army that's got the elevation, is always going to win. So neither one is willing to go down in the valley, they're just at this deadlock. And so the Philistines can, can decide to do what often was done in, in ancient warfare, which was called single combat. We send our greatest warrior, you send your greatest warrior. They fight it out, whoever wins, that's the winner of the battle. That's the, that's the army that gets the plunder. And so they send forth their champion, Goliath. One morning he comes down and he yells out to the Israelite army. And he challenges them and says, are you not the people of Saul? Are you not the people of your God? Who will come and fight me? Who is brave enough to fight me? Man on man, let's end this now. And the Israelites hear this, and they start to whisper, and no one steps forward. Day two comes. Goliath comes and taunts the Israelites, taunts their God. And, they, and they, the Israelites whisper to each other and say, are you going to go? Are you going to go? Who's going to go? They look around. Nobody goes. Day three comes. Day four. Day five. Day 10. Day 20. Day 30. For 40 days, Goliath has come and taunted them and asked them to bring forth a warrior. For 40 days, he has called out their God, and no one has been willing to stand up against the giant. No one has been willing to stand up for their God. Even King Saul who's there every morning here, this man blasts his king, blasts his God, and he doesn't do anything about it. So for 40 days he comes and he taunts the Israelites. Then you have David. For the past 40 days, he's been watching the sheep back home. He's a young kid, he's, a, he's the runt. He's small, he's the youngest of Jesse's sons. The other sons, the brave ones, have gone off to war. But David has been kept behind to care for the sheep. And Jesse is concerned about his, about his sons, and so he decides to send David with, with some food, with a sack lunch to take him to, to the brothers. And so David goes to the battlefield, not to fight. No, he's too small, he's too pampered, he's too protected. They send him there just to take, deliver a meal. And so David gets there on the 40th day, just about time Goliath is coming down from the Philistine camp, and, and he start, begins talking to the Israelites, and then he hears the thunder of Goliath's voice rolling through, and everyone gets silent. And he hears Goliath call out the army. More importantly, he hears Goliath call out his Lord. And he looks around and wonders, who's going to step forward? And everyone's looking down. For 40 days, they've been ashamed Scared, fearful. They're not willing to fight, not willing to stand up for the Lord. 
And David's looking around. He's looking at his brothers. He's looking at his brother's friends. He's looking at everyone, perhaps looking over towards the king's tent, wondering, why has no one come forward yet? And so he begins to ask questions. And he asks, what's going to be the prize for the person that goes and wins? And how come, what's going to happen when God defeats this man? These questions are quite revealing to the story. Because they, they answer him that the prize for the one that wins is you, you'll get Saul's daughter in marriage, which means you become royalty. It means you'll, he says that you'll get riches. And your family, your extended family, will live tax-free forever. It's very revealing that about one, the Israelites are scared. No one's willing to step forward and meet Goliath, even for that great of a bounty. And it says a lot about Saul. Saul's there. The text, when we were first introduced to Saul in, in 1 Samuel, says that he was a head and a half above the average man. Saul is the biggest one they have. Saul is the king. Saul is their leader. Saul is the one that should go and fight Goliath. And instead, Saul has just tried to bribe the entire Israelite army. Instead of trusting that God would save him, Saul has just gone and tried to bribe everyone there. And so his brother, David's brother, hears him asking these questions and gets upset. He gets upset, and, and Elab, it says in chapter, verse 28, when Elab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? He begins to question David's motive. And, what, and with, whom did you, <clears throat> with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? He's trying to belittle and embarrass David. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now he's just plain mean. Of anyone there that should have David's back should be his big brother. Of anyone there that should be listening and, and hearing David and being able to come along to David and say, oh, here, let me tell you why, why we are not fighting Goliath. Let, let me tell you about how tall this guy is. Let me tell you about his coat of armor. It should be his older brother. But instead his older brother attacks him. Throughout the story, there's so many connections we could make. For example, Goliath comes day after day for 40 days. And it feels like that with our giants as well, doesn't it? And it seems like day after day, worry, fear, day after day, panic, depression, day after day, anxiety, all these things keep coming at us day after day. They never stop. Goliath never stops. And then, like the older brother, the people that should have your back, sometimes fellow Christians seem to be sometimes the worst, right? People that you would think would have our back, that when we say, hey, we're going to go do this thing for God, the fellow Christians would be like, oh, that's a great idea, but, and they pull you back. And they don't want to see God outside of the little box that they have. David's willing to go outside of this box and fight Goliath, but, but Elam wants him to come back in and stay within the, the bounds of safety. As a youth pastor, I had many students that wanted to, to skip a year of college and go be, uh, a, go be a missionary or to take a summer and be a missionary or, or perhaps even go into missions for life. And it broke my heart because I saw parent after parent after parent tell them no. Tell them it's not safe. You're not going to make much money. It's too hard to fundraise. Saw people after people telling them, come back in the little box that we've made God. That's what Elab's doing. That's what oftentimes we do as Christians. 
And so here we have David, and he asks these questions. Like I said, verse 26 says, David asked the men standing near, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? I love how he's confident. It's not the man who battles the Philistine. It's the man who kills the Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David has full confidence that he will win this battle, that anyone, anyone, not just David, would win this battle because God is on his side. And the people around him hear this confidence, and there's, some, there's a new life, there's new breath, there's new someone after 40 days of everyone being down. There's someone that sees the positive, and so they take him to King Saul's tent. And they present him to Saul and say, Saul, this young man thinks that this battle can be won. And Saul has a conversation with him and says, no, no, you can't do this, you're, you're just a kid. And it says, verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. And then David begins to give a pitch. A sales pitch. David was a mighty seller of something amazing, which was God. This is a great sales pitch, like better than anything you've ever seen on Shark Tank, right? This is an amazing sales pitch, and he begins. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both a lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paws of the lion and the paws of the bears will rescue me from the hands of the Philistines. He's giving God the full credit. He has the skills to beat the lion and the bear, but he says it's the God that rescued him from their paws and the God that will rescue him from this giant that's in front of him today. Saul's persuaded. Perhaps he's inspired Perhaps he's reminded of the strength of God that David sees. Perhaps he's just at a loss that no one else has been willing to for 40 days. This guy is willing to give it a shot. Either way, Saul concedes and says, you can go fight him. But first, let me put you in armor. This is a mighty warrior and you're going to need it. And so he puts him in Saul's armor and Saul's coat and shield and helmet and sword. And it's all too big. Saul is a head and a half above. David is a runt. None of it fits, and David's never been a soldier. He doesn't know how to fight in this stuff. He doesn't know how to get around. And so he says that, that he doesn't need any of that. All he needs is his sling. So we step into the battle in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch and in his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Malcolm Gladwell, author, uh, has shared some interesting stuff about the sling, and I wanted to share it with you because it was just fascinating to me. In ancient warfare, there was basically three groups of, of warriors. There's the cavalry, people that are coming in on a horse. There's the infantry, which is like Goliath, the, the warriors that are doing hand-to-hand battle. And then there's the archery, and then there's the artillery, which included archers and slingers. Archers was obviously a bow and arrow, but slingers... What slingers were was they had a leather pouch with two strings that dangled down from it. 
and they would take a lead ball or they would take a rock and they would put it in that pouch. And then with the, at the end of the two strings, they would begin to twirl. And they would get that thing rotating so fast, it would be six, seven rotations per second. And they let go of one of the strings, which would then open up the pouch and that projectile would shoot at wherever they aimed. The, they believe that uh, any good slinger, when twirling it, it would rotate that fast. And by the time that it would exit the, the pouch, it would be flying at about 35 meters per second. Way faster than anyone can throw a baseball. Incredibly fast. But Malcolm Gladwell dives a little deeper into it. He says that he picked up those five stones there in the valley. In the valley, the stones there are, are made of barium sulfate which is twice as dense as a normal stone. If you and I were to go outside and pick up a rock, these rocks would be twice as dense as anything we could find. And so it's believed that at the speed that this rock would leave, at the density of the rock, it would be equivalent to a bullet being shot out of a 45, uh, 45 handgun. This is the power of what David is going to battle with. And as far as accuracy is concerned, we have ancient writings talking about that the slingers could shoot a target from up to 200 meters away. I had texted some hunting friends yesterday morning and asked, hey, is 200 meters a good shot? I don't know. I'm not a hunter. I'm not even sure how far 200 meters is other than I just think of football, right? Okay, so two football fields. And, and so they all said, yeah, that's, that's a really hard shot. That's a, that's a good, an experienced hunter would be able to make that. But you'd have to be experienced and have the right gun. A slinger could hit that from 200 meters away. There's tapestries, an ancient tapestry that shows a slinger hitting a bird in mid-flight. So we know that the accuracy was there. So David goes to battle confident in what he has. Not just confident in the stone, but in what he has in God. But it's interesting, it says he grabs five stones. And I don't know about you, I always wondered about that. Is that. Was it just a random number? Was it, if he had this confidence in his ability, if he had this confidence in God, why would he have four extra stones? Why wouldn't you just go into battle with one? Because all he needed was the first one. But it's interesting, there's many, many commentaries, many ideas on why he had the stones. But one that I, I've heard and one that I feel is probably accurate is in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 20, we're introduced to part of the army of the Philistines again. And as we're introduced to that army, we find out that there's four more giants from Gath, Goliath's brothers. So there's five of these big guys in all. In chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, we see that one of them, it says that he was strong enough that his spear was like a, a weaver's rod, which would have been 12 to 15 feet long. One of the brothers, it says that he had six hand, fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. The other, two, the other two brothers, it just says that they were large, that they were giants as well. And so I wonder if David didn't pick up five because he knew I'm battling Goliath, but then his brothers are going to come after me to defend him. And all he need is one. For each one of them. Because God is in control. And so we continue on with the story. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bare in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come here with me stick with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by, by his gods. Come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. 
Goliath was caught up in his own pride. Goliath was caught up in his own past victories. Instead of being quizzical and saying, why would this entire Israelite army send this boy? What do they know that I don't know? He was so caught up in himself and his pride that he was willing to overlook anything like that and was convinced that he would win. But I love this. David says to the Philistine, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." David is, is proud and bragging on his Lord. Not on his ability with the sling, not on his ability with the armies, but that God would prevail. And so he goes with full confidence that God has this. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Goliath hadn't even got his sword out before the battle was over. I love this story. As a little third grader that finds out he's short, I love this story. As a continual underdog, I love this story. I think we all do, right? That's why the underdog movie is so popular, right? From from Mighty Ducks to Rudy to Rocky, we all love the story of the guy that's not supposed to win, of the girl that's not supposed to win, beating the giant, winning this battle, and being victorious. We love this story as mankind. This is a story non-Christians know about, know this idea of David and Goliath, and they want to root for David. And as Christians, we see the spiritual side of it. And we see that God was on his side. And and this is the message that we usually take from this story. This is a message that I've heard preached over and over. This is a message that uh, almost every sermon you hear about David and Goliath will preach the same message. That with God on our side, we can beat the giants. Right? All All David needed was a stone and God and Goliath went down. And it's a great message. It's the one that's supposed to be inspiring. It's one that's willing to say whatever your giant is in your life, whatever the struggle is, whether it's a health issue, a finance issue, relationship issue, life issue, a depression issue, worry issue, COVID issue, whatever it is that with God we can be victorious. And it's a great message, but it's not one that I could preach. It's not one that I see in that story. It's not one that with my heart I could proclaim. Because the reality is there's, there's struggles in our life that are going to beat us. There's diagnoses that that person is going to be plagued with a chronic illness or, or worse, a terminal one and pass away. There's relationships that are broken that don't get mended. There's jobs that you're trying to hold on to and Friday comes and you get that slip that says this is your last day. There's struggles and challenges that seem to win. 
And so to preach that message is not one that I could do with a, a pure heart. It's one I want to say. It's one I want to hear. It's one that you probably want to hear is that we're David and we're going to win this battle. But the reality is, and I think maybe a more hopeful message is, is to look at this, look at this scene and what's this look like today? We aren't David. We're the Israelites. We're the ones on the back hill that are kind of scared of that giant. We're the ones that are unable to battle him because he's too big, because he's too strong. And that giant is Satan. That giant is sin. That giant is death. And there's nothing that we could do to be able to combat that giant. Nine feet tall is too big for any one of us. Satan is too big for any one of us. Death, sin is too big for any one of us. But the point of this message is not that we are David, but we are the Israelites because there is a different David. And that's where the joy comes and the hope comes that David is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that God has planned to go out and battle Satan. Jesus Christ is the one that in this idea of single combat for the sides of good and evil, Jesus went and faced, faced Goliath and won and was victorious. And we're on the Israelite camp and we get to be on the victorious side. What a great message that Jesus is our David. And he has conquered Goliath, not in the valley of Sakoth, but on the hillside called Golgotha. On a cross that he hung, he conquered death. He conquered sin, he conquered Satan, he conquered the truth giant. So the Israelites, you and me, could be on the winning side. You see what happens when David wins, what happens to the Israelites? It says that when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Samara road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. The Israelites were victorious because David had won. We are victorious because Jesus has beaten Satan. Sin, death, eternal damnation has been beaten. And because of that, we have eternity because of Jesus winning in this battle because Jesus was the one that beat the giant, not us. We have hope. And so, yeah, in our life, we have struggles. We have things that we think are, are giants. But the reality is it's not the giant. That is Satan. That is sin. That is death. And so the battles we face, we can face with confidence as the Israelites did, because Jesus has already won. And so when we get that diagnosis, that is that's not a positive one. When we get that reality that death is coming, we have confidence in what's after death, that Jesus has already won and we have eternity in heaven with God. That in the midst of, uh, in the midst of a broken relationship, we have the opportunity to be able to stand strong and know that Jesus has already won and that we have Jesus on our side. In the midst of, uh, of struggling with unemployment or, or struggles at school or work, we know that we have God to cling to. We know that we have something stronger. In the midst of times when we have unbelief, as the Israelites did, for 40 days they cowered. But then when they saw that David had beat Goliath, they found strength. And those times when we're struggling in our faith, let us point to Jesus and know that he has beaten the giant for us. This morning, 
we're gonna sing. And I hope we sing loud. And I hope we can proclaim that there is a Jesus and he has beaten this. He has beaten Satan, he has beaten the giant. And we don't have to. If you'll stand with me, I pray that we can sing a hallelujah in our lives, not just in the song, but we sing a hallelujah in our lives when we're facing our struggles because Jesus has beaten the giant. That we can sing a hallelujah when we're facing unbelief. We can sing a hallelujah when we're facing our storms because Jesus has already won. The battle is not about us. David is not us. Jesus is. What an amazing story to know that Jesus has already won.